Hi there. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Stories That Made Us. This week we head to Greece for the tales of Pygmalion and then a Phaeton. These stories were initially told and propagated orally, with evidence of Minoan and Mycenaean bards singing songs of gods and heroes way back in the 18th century BC. Pictorial depictions of these tales were popular too, featuring prominently in vast paintings and decorations. The first story we recount today is that of Pygmalion, which is a tale of a prominent king and a sculptor of Cyprus. It is recorded in Book 10 of Ovid's Metamorphosis, and the story you're about to hear now has been taken from the book, titled A Book of Myths, authored by Jean Lang. Details are in the description. So then, without further ado, let's begin with the first tale, the story of Pygmalion. In days when the world was young, and when the gods walked on the earth, there reigned over the island of Cyprus a sculptor king, a king of sculptors, some called him, and he was named Pygmalion. In the language of our own day, we should call him wedded to his art. In women he only saw the bane of man. Women, he believed, lured men from the paths to which their destiny called them. While man walked alone, he walked free. He had given no hostages to fortune. Alone, a man could live for his art, could combat every danger that clings to the oak, and throttles the oak at the end. No woman! vowed Pygmalion should ever hamper him. And so, at length he came to hate women, and, free of heart and mind, his genius wrought such great things that he became a very perfect sculptor. He had one passion, a passion for his art, and that sufficed him. Out of great rough blocks of marble he would chisel the most perfect semblance of man and of women, and of everything that seemed to him most beautiful and the most worth preserving. When we look now at the Venus of Milo, at the Diana of Versailles, and at the Apollo of Belvedere in the Vatican, we can imagine what were the greater things that the sculptor of Cyprus freed from the dead blocks of marble. One day, as he chipped and chiseled, there came to him, like a rough sketch of a great picture, the semblance of a woman. How it came, he knew not. Only he knew that in that great mass of pure white stone, there seemed to be imprisoned the exquisite image of a woman. A woman that he must set free. Slowly, gradually, the woman came. Soon he knew that she was the most beautiful thing that his art had ever wrought. All that he had ever thought that a woman should be, this woman was. Her form and features were almost perfect, and so perfect were they that he felt sure 
that had she been a woman indeed, most perfect would have been the soul within. For her he worked as he had never worked before. There came, at last, a day when he felt that another touch would be insult to the exquisite thing he had created. Pygmalion laid his chisel aside and sat down to gaze at the perfect woman. She seemed to gaze back at him. Her parted lips were ready to speak, to smile. Her hands were held out to hold his hands. Then Pygmalion covered his eyes. He, the hater of women, loved a woman. A woman of chilly marble. The women he had scorned seemed to have been avenged. Day by day, his passion for the woman of his own creation grew and grew. His hands could no longer wield the chisel. They grew idle. He would stand under the great pines and gaze across the blue sea and dream strange dreams of a marble woman who walked across the waves with arms outstretched, with smiling lips, and who became a woman of warm flesh and blood when her bare feet touched the yellow sand, and the bright son of Cyprus touched her marble hair and turned it into hair of living gold. Then he would hasten back to his studio to find the miracle still unaccomplished. And he would passionately kiss the little cold hands and lay beside the little cold feet the presents he knew that young girls loved. Bright shells and exquisite precious stones, gorgeous hued birds and fragrant flowers, shining amber and beads that sparkled and flashed with all the most lovely combinations of colour that the mind of an artist could devise. Yet more he did, for he spent vast sums on priceless pearls and hung them in her ears and upon her cold white breast, and the merchants wondered who could be the one upon whom Pygmalion lavished the money from his treasury. To his sculpted divinity, Pygmalion gave a name. He called her Galatia, and always on still nights the myriad silver stars would seem to breathe to him Galatia, and on those days when the tempest blew across the sandy wastes of Arabia and churned up the fierce white surf on the rocks of Cyprus, the very spirit of the storm seemed to moan through the crash of waves in longing, hopeless and unutterable. Galatia, Galatia. For her he decked a couch with Tyrian purple, and on the softest pillow he laid the beautiful head of the marble woman he loved. So the time wore on until the festival of Aphrodite drew near. Smoke from the many altars curled out to the sea. The odour of incense mingled with the fragrance of the great pine trees, and garlanded victims lowed and bleated as they were led to sacrifice. 
As the leader of his people, Pygmalion faithfully and perfectly performed all his parts in the rites and sacrifices, and at last was left alone beside the altar to pray. Never before had his words faltered as he laid his petitions before the goddess. But on this day, he spoke not as a sculptor king, but as a child who was half afraid of what he asked. Oh, Aphrodite, he said, one who can do all things, give me, I pray you, one like my Galatia for my wife. Give me my Galatia, he dared not say, but Aphrodite knew well the words he would fain have uttered, and smiled to think how Pygmalion at last was on his knees. In token that his prayer was answered, three times she made the flames on the altar shoot up in a fiery point, and Pygmalion went home, scarcely daring to hope, not allowing his gladness to conquer his fear. The shadows of evening were falling as he went into the room that he had made sacred to Galatia. On the purple-covered couch she lay, and as he entered, it seemed as though she met his eyes with her own. Almost it seemed that she smiled at him in welcome. He quickly went up to her, and, kneeling by her side, he pressed his lips on those lips of chilly marble. So many times he had done it before and always it was as though the icy lips that could never live sent their chill right through his heart. But now, it surely seemed to him that the lips were cold no longer. He felt for one of the little hands, and no more did it remain heavy and cold and stiff in his touch, but lay in his own hand soft and living and warm. He softly laid his fingers on the marble hair, and lo, it was the soft and wavy burnished golden hair of his desire. And again, reverently as he had laid his offerings that day on the altar of Aphrodite, Pygmalion kissed her lips, and then did Galatia, with warm and rosy cheeks, widely opened her eyes, like pools in a dark mountain stream on which the sun is shining, and gaze with timid gladness into his own. There are no aftertales of Pygmalion and Galatia, we only know that their lives were happy, and that to them was born a son, Paphos from whom the city sacred to Aphrodite received his name. Perhaps Aphrodite may have smiled sometimes to watch Pygmalion, once the scorner of women, the adoring servant of the woman that his own hands had first designed. The second story is of Phaeton the son of Apollo, the sun god, and Clymene, the nymph, and is recounted in books 1 and 2 of Ovid's Metamorphosis. 
Let's then begin with this wondrous tale of antiquity. To Apollo, the sun god, and Clymene, a beautiful ocean nymph, there was born in the pleasant land of Greece a child to whom was given the name of Phaeton, the bright and shining one. The rays of the sun seemed to live in the curls of the fearless little lad, and when at noon other children would seek the cool shade of the cypress groves, Phaeton would hold his head aloft and gaze fearlessly up at the brazen sky, from whence fierce heat beat down upon his golden head. Behold, my father drives his chariot across the heavens, he proudly proclaimed. In a little while, I also will drive the four snow-white steeds. His elders heard the child boast with a smile. But when Epaphos, half-brother to Apollo, had listened to it many times, and beheld the child Phaeton grow into an arrogant lad who held himself as though he were indeed one of the immortals, anger grew in his heart. One day he turned upon Phaeton and spoke in a fierce scorn. Do you say you are the son of a god? A shameless boaster and a liar are you? Have you ever spoken to your divine father? Give us some proof of your father, some proof of your godship. No more a child of the glorious Apollo are you? than the vermin the sun breeds in the dust at my feet. For a moment before the cruel taunt, the lad was stricken into silence. And then his pride aflame, his young voice shaking with rage and with bitter shame, Phaeton cried aloud, You, Epaphos, are the liar. I have but to ask my father and you shall see me driving his golden chariot across the sky. To his mother he hastened to get balm for his hurt pride, as many a time as he had got it for the little bodily wounds of childhood, and with bursting heart he poured forth his story. True it is, he said, that my father has never deigned to speak to me, yet I know because you have told me that he is my father. And now my word is pledged. Apollo must let me drive his steeds, else I am for everyone and forever to be branded a braggart and a liar and shamed amongst men. Clymene listened with grief to his complaint. He was so young, so gallant, so foolish. You truly are the son of Apollo, she said, and, O oh, son of my heart, your beauty is his, and your pride is the pride of a son of the gods. Yet only partly a god are you, and Though your proud courage would dare all things, it would be madness, stupid to think of doing what a god alone can do. But he persisted and cried, 
and pestered his mother forevermore to be allowed to go to find his father. At last, she said to him, There is nothing I can say that would stop you then. Go, seek your father, and ask him what you will. Then she told him how he might find the place in the east where Apollo rested before the labors of the day began. And, with eager gladness, Phaeton set about his journey. A long way he traveled, with never a stop. Yet, when the glittering dome and jeweled turrets and the minarets of the Palace of the Sun came into view, he forgot his weariness and hastened up the steep ascent to the home of his father. Phoebus Apollo, the sun god, clad in purple that glowed like the radiance of a cloud in the sunset sky, sat upon his golden throne. The day, the month, and the year stood by him, and beside him were the hours. Spring was there, her head wreathed with flowers, summer crowned with ripened grain, autumn with his feet empurpled by the juice of grapes, and winter with hair all white and stiff with hoar frost. And when Phaeton walked up the golden steps that led to his father's throne, it seemed as though incarnate youth had come to join the court of the god of the sun, and that youth was so beautiful a thing that it must surely live forever. Proudly did Apollo know him for his son, and when the boy looked in his eyes with the arrogant fearlessness of boyhood, the god greeted him kindly and asked him to tell him why he came and what was his petition. As to Clymene, so also to Apollo, Phaeton told his tale, and his father listened, half in pride and amusement, half in puzzled vexation. When the boy stopped, and then breathlessly, with shining eyes and flushed cheeks, ended up his story with, and O light of the boundless world, if I am indeed thy son, let it be as I have said, and for one day only, let me drive your chariot across the heavens. Apollo shook his head, and answered very gravely, In truth, you truly are my son, dear boy, he said, and by the dreadful sticks, the river of the dead, I swear that I will give you any gift that you name, and that I will give proof that your father is the immortal Apollo. But never to you, nor to any other, be he mortal, or indeed immortal, shall I grant the boon of driving my chariot." But the boy, undeterred, pled on. I am shamed forever, my father, he said. Surely you would not have your son proved a liar and a braggart. But my child, answered Apollo, not even the gods themselves can do this. No, not even the mighty Zeus. None but I, Phoebus Apollo, may drive the flaming chariot of the sun. <laughs>
for the way is beset with dangers, and none know it but I. Only tell me the way, my father, cried Phaeton. So soon could I learn. Half in sadness, Apollo smiled. The first part of the way is uphill, he said. So steep it is that only very slowly can my horses climb it. High in the heavens is the middle, so high that even I grow dizzy when I look down upon the earth and the sea. And the last piece of the way is a precipice that rushes so steeply downward that my hands can scarce check the mad rush of my galloping horses. And all the while, the heaven is spinning round and the stars with it. By the horns of the bull have I to drive past the archer whose bow is taut and ready to slay, close to where the scorpion stretches out its arms, and the great crab's claws grope for a prey. Apollo, of course, was naming the constellations. I fear for none of these things, O oh my father, cried Phaeton. Grant, please, that for one day only I drive your white-maned horses. Very pitifully, Apollo looked at him, and for a little while he was silent. The little human hands, the god said at last, the little human frame, and with them the soul of a god. The pity of it, my son, do you not know? that the boon that you ask me to grant you shall bring your death. Rather death than dishonor, said Phaeton, and proudly he added, for once I would drive like the god, like my father. I have no fear. And so Apollo's arguments were vanquished, and Phaeton gained his heart's desire. From the courtyard of the palace the four white horses were led, and they pawed the air and neighed aloud in the glory of their strength. They drew the chariot whose axle and poles and wheels were of gold with spokes of silver, while inside were rows of diamond and of chrysolites that gave dazzling reflection of the sun. Then Apollo anointed the face of Phaeton with a powerful essence that might keep him from being smitten by the flames, and upon his head he placed the rays of the sun. And then the stars went away, even to the day star that went last of all, and at Apollo's signal, Aurora, the rosy-fingered, threw open the purple gates of the east and Phaeton saw a path of pale rose colour before him. With a cry of joy, the boy leapt into the chariot and laid hold of the golden reins. Barely did he hear Apollo's parting words, Hold fast the reins and spare the whip. All your strength will be wanted to hold the horses in. Do not go too high nor too low. 
The middle course is the safest and the best. Follow if you can in the old tracks of my chariot wheels. And so Apollo stood and watched Phaeton vanishing into the dawn that still was soft in hue as the feathers on the breast of a dove. Uphill at first the white steeds made their way, and the fire from their nostrils tinged with flame colour the dark clouds that hung over the land and the sea. With rapture, Phaeton felt that truly he was the son of a god, and that at length he was enjoying his heritage, the day for which, through all his short life, he had longed, had come at last. He was driving the chariot whose progress even now was awaking the sleeping earth. The radiance from its wheels and from the rays he wore around his head was painting the clouds, and he laughed aloud in happiness as he saw, far down below, the sea and the rivers he had bathed in as a human boy, mirroring the green and rose and purple and gold and silver and fierce crimson that he, Phaeton, was placing in the sky. The grey mist rolled from the mountain tops at his desire, the white fog rolled up from the valleys. All living things awoke, the flowers opened their petals, the grain grew golden, the fruits grew ripe. Good but Epaphos see him now, surely he must see him and realize that not Apollo but Phaeton was guiding the horses of his father driving the chariot of the sun. Quicker and yet more quick grew the pace of the white-maned streets. Soon they left the morning breezes behind, and very soon they knew that these were not the hands of the gods, their master, that held the golden reins. Like an airship without its accustomed ballast, the chariot rolled unsteadily, and not only the boy's light weight, but his light hold on their bridles made them grow mad with the lust of speed. The white foam flew from the horse's mouth like the spume from the giant waves of a furious sea, and their pace was as swift as that of a boat that is cast by the arm of Zeus. Yet Phaeton had no fear, and when they heard him shout in happiness, quicker still, brave ones, more swiftly still, it made them speed onwards, madly, blindly, with the headlong rush of a storm. There was no hope for them to keep on the beaten track, and soon Phaeton and his excitement checked by the terrible realization that they had strayed far out of the course, and that his hands were not strong enough to guide them. Close to the great bear and the little bear they passed, and these were scorched with heat. The serpent, which, torpid, chilly and harmless, lies coiled around the North Pole, felt a warmth that made it grow fierce and harmful again. Downward, ever downward, galloped the maddened horses, and soon 
Phaeton saw the sea as a shield of molten brass, and the earth so near that all things on it were visible. When they passed the scorpion and only just missed the destruction from its menacing fans, fear entered into the boy's heart. His mother had spoken truth. He was only partly a god, and he was very, very young. In impotent horror, he tugged at the reins to try to check the horse's descent. Then, forgetful of Apollo's warning, he smote them angrily. But anger met anger, and the fury of the immortal steeds had scorn for the warmth of a mortal boy. With a great toss of their mighty heads, they had torn the guiding reins from his grasp, and as he stood, giddy, swaying from side to side, Phaeton knew that the boon he had craved from his father must in truth be death for him. And lo, it was a hideous death, for with eyes that were like flames that burned his brain, the boy beheld the terrible havoc that his pride had wrought. That blazing chariot of the sun made the clouds smoke and dried up all the rivers and water springs. Fire burst from the mountain tops. Great cities were destroyed. The beauty of the earth was ravished. Woods and meadows and all green and pleasant places were laid waste. The harvests perished, the flocks and they who had herded them lay dead. Over Libya the horses took him, and the desert of Libya remains a barren wilderness to this day. The Nile changed its course in order to escape and the nymphs, in terror, sought for the sanctuary of some watery place that had escaped destruction. The face of the burnt and blackened earth, where the bodies of thousands of human beings lay charred to ashes, cracked and sent dismay to Pluto by the lurid lights that penetrated even to his throne. All this Phaeton saw, and saw in impotent agony of his soul. His boyish folly and pride had been great, but the excruciating anguish that made him shed tears of blood was indeed a punishment even too heavy for an erring god. From the havoc around her, the earth at last looked up, and with blackened face and blinded eyes, and in a voice that was harsh, and very, very weary, she called to Zeus to look down from Olympus and behold the ruin that had been wrought by the chariot of the sun. And Zeus, the cloud-gatherer, looked down and beheld, and at the sight of that piteous devastation his brow grew dark, and terrible was his anger against him who had held the reins of the chariot. Calling upon Apollo and all the other gods to witness him, he seized a lightning bolt. And for a moment the deathless Zeus and all the dwellers in Olympus looked on the fiery chariot in which stood the swaying, slight, lithe figure of a young lad 
blinded with horror, shaken with agony. Then from his hand, Zeus cast the bolt, and the chariot was dashed into fragments, and Phaeton, his golden hair ablaze, fell like a bright shooting star from the heavens above into the river Eridanus. The steeds returned to their master Apollo, and in rage and grief Apollo lashed them. Angrily too, and very rebelliously did he speak of the punishment meted to his son by the ruler of the immortals. Yet in truth, the punishment was a merciful one. Phaeton was only a half-god, and no human life were fit to live after the day of dire anguish that had been his. Bitter was the mourning of Clymene over her beautiful only son, and so ceaselessly did his three sisters, the Heliades, weep for their brother, that the gods turned them into the poplar trees that grow by the banks of the river. And when they still wept, their tears turned into precious amber as they fell. Yet another moaned for Phaeton. Sinius, the king of Liguria, had dearly loved the gallant boy, and again and yet again he dived deep in the river and brought forth the charred fragments of what had once been the beautiful son of a god, and gave to them honourable burial. Yet he could not rest satisfied that he had won all that remained of his friend from the river's bed, and so he continued to haunt the stream, ever diving, ever searching, until the gods grew weary of his restless sorrow and changed him into a swan. And still we see the swan sailing mournfully along, like a white-sailed barge that is bearing the body of a king to its rest, and ever and ever plunging deep into the water, as though the search for the boy who would fain have been a god were never to come to an end. That's all we have time for in this episode. Join us again next week as we continue with more tales of heroines and heroes of mythology. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating the podcast. It hardly takes any time and helps us out immensely. Also, don't forget to share the episode with your friends and family. But that's only after you've subscribed to us. Join us on Twitter and Instagram by following the handle at StoriesTHTMDEUS. That's at StoriesTHTMDEUS. Details of our social media footprints are all in the show notes. That's all I've got to tell this week. So until we meet again next week, Goodbye.